Any questions on this, on the topic of evangelism or this morning's passage? I know I'm not the guy who preached it, but Daniel and I have talked some about it. I did pick it for Daniel, so um, there's that. But any any questions on that evangelism in general? Yes, Lee or Don. Oh, I wondered if I was going to attack upon that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, wow, that's a can of worms. I'm going to pause for a moment. Don, what's your question? Okay. Okay. Um, okay, let me. Here's the short answer, Lee. The short answer is when you talk about Christ dying for people, you're really picked up on the whole issue of limited, unlimited atonement. And so. Daniel was speaking in a, I don't know exactly what his view is. There are passages in the Bible that speak of Christ dying for the world, and you've got to work through those. But there's other passages, like, say, Isaiah 53, he bore the sorrows of his people. Daniel is speaking in that biblical language, which is equally faithful. He, he bore the, the sins of his people. Um, and I don't know if that's because he, where he's at on, on the whole limited atonement issue. There's a, clearly a sense in which Jesus dies for the world. That, that's biblical. It gets trickier when you start pressing what that means. Does Jesus actually bear specific sins of specific people? Let's take an example. Judas. Did Jesus pay for each and every one of Judas's sins on the cross? If you say yes, then you've got to ask the question, then how is it just that Judas is also paying for it? If, if, if the Father's wrath was removed, satisfied for Judas's sins specifically, then how is it just that Judas? How is the wrath left for Judas? And if you say, well, it has to be accepted, that doesn't work. If I go to your credit card company and pay your credit card bill and they accept the money, it doesn't matter whether you accept me paying for you. If I've already paid them on your behalf, they have no just claim on you. If Jesus has expiated the Father's wrath for Judas, how is there wrath left for Judas? Anyway, that gets problematic and it gets tricksy. So I don't know what he was trying to get at. He was probably saying safe. Usually when I evangelize, I'll do the same thing. I'm concerned in evangelism that people think they're already forgiven. So I'll say things like, Jesus died so that anyone, people just like you, he can be forgiven. Jesus, Jesus died for the sins of people just like you and me and for everyone who, who will come. But it does get tricky when you start asking, okay, in what sense... I, I go to passages like 1 Timothy 4, God and Savior of all men, especially those who believe. There's definitely a sense in which Jesus is the Savior of the world. There's a more specific sense in which Jesus is the Savior of his people. And there's biblical um, threads or biblical um, language for both of those. So he was, Daniel was speaking in completely biblical language, but it certainly, I, I was wondering if anyone was going to pick up, what's, why do you say it like that? Um, the best thing would be to ask him. But anyway, questions on that. I don't really want to turn the whole morning into limited atonement, but we can if we need to. That's fine. Fun times. Um, no follow-up? Okay. Any other questions? About this? What's your question? Don's looking at me. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yes. 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 Let me look at 21 trespass. Um, who knows sin, righteousness, trespass. 19 says trespass. Let me, hold on, let me check. I'll check for you right now. 
Um, okay. Uh, paraptoma. Paraptoma. Trespass also translated as... Hold on, BDAG. Um, violation of moral standards, offense, wrongdoing, sin, trespass. That's paratoma. And then in verse 21, um, he, harmartion. Now, they're different words. Um, sin, they're different words, but when we hear trespass, we do think small thing. I don't think in the Greek the no, notion of trespass is a small thing. Um, it's an offense, a violation, a breaking of law, a wrongdoing. He didn't count people's violations against them. He became sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Um, fair enough. Good question. Follow up with that. Or, is, or more? Do you have more with that, Don? Or is that... Oh, okay. Right. That's fine. Any other questions on this morning's passage or evangelism in general or anything like that? Yes! Okay, let's go there. I don't remember what the reference was. I'll try to find it. I thought it was Timothy. Or was it Peter? Second Timothy 1. Let's... Second Timothy 1, 8 and 9. Therefore, be not ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel of the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Jesus Christ before the ages began. So God graced us with a gift of grace in Jesus, which is the gift of salvation before creation. So our salvation was determined, sure, and gifted before God ever created. This isn't plan B, this is plan A. Who's, is this Dan's pen? Jim, can I toss this to you and you get it to Dan? Okay, thank you. Dude, I got mad skills. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, that's the reference. Other questions on evangelism and the ministry of reconciliation? Let me make one other point. Go, go to 2 Corinthians. I gave Daniel a very rich passage. I want to make one other point that I think you'll find encouraging. Um, one of the uh, one of the things that I frequently repeat that I picked up from John MacArthur, um, although I, he's not original with him, is the statement: the scriptures are like a lion. You just let a lion out, out of its box. You don't worry about defending it; it'll take care of itself. One of the things I love about this passage is when we are evangelizing properly, when we are witnessing properly, who is the one actually witnessing and and, and speaking through us? Holy Spirit says right here. I mean, it's just an amazing statement. Therefore, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Do you understand that when you share your faith faithfully, God himself is the one making his appeal through you, which means you don't need to worry about having 27 answers for 38 objections. And what do you do with carbon dating? And what do you do with this? What do you do with that? Look, look, I just got a message I want to give to you. I want to, I want to announce a message to you. I want to call you to reconciliation. And I want to hope that if I'm faithful, I can get enough of me out of the way that God himself is appealing. And let God worry about authenticating. And let God worry about convicting. And let God worry about proving the trustworthiness of his message. Because ultimately, if we're doing this right, God's the one speaking. 
which takes a lot of weight off my shoulders. It's great to have answers. Apologetics is a wonderful thing. Apologetics has very little to do with evangelism. Let me, let me explain what I mean. The point of apologetics, if you think of, you think of a, an, an attack and a defense, a sword and a shield, apologetics is the shield. Apologetics is to shut the mouth, as Calvin would say, of the obstreperous. It's to shut the mouths of scoffers. And you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and 1. God has made foolishness the wisdom of men. Where is the debater? Where is the scholar? No, we've got answers. We can demonstrate that what other people are claiming, other people's excuses for why they don't come to Christ, is foolishness and, and nonsensical. We can do that, but that's the defensive shield. People don't get converted because of that. People get converted by the power of the message preached of the gospel, which is announced. You don't need to defend the gospel. You announce the gospel. You proclaim the gospel. You, you, does that distinction make sense? So the, the, the sword in evangelism is simply declaring lovingly but clearly the gospel message. You don't need to worry about defending it. You don't need to worry about answering 37 objections. It is the power of God unto salvation, Right? And when we do it properly, God himself is making his appeal and his spirit is, is, a, is attending to the matter. Apologetics, defending your faith, answering objections, is biblical and is certainly faithful. It is not necessary for evangelism to take place. It has much more to do with, with shutting the mouths of mockers, scoffers, and demonstrating to people they have no excuse. But it, it, people don't get saved because of apologetics. People get saved because of the faithful proclamation of the gospel. Does that, does that distinction make sense? I just know in myself that I've felt before, maybe you have, that I'm afraid to share my faith because what if they ask me, if you've ever had someone ask you a question you don't have an answer for, you remember that next time you think of opening your mouth and you don't want to look like an idiot. You don't need to worry about that. You, you, we need to have the humility to say, hey, that's a really good question and I don't have an answer for you right now. I'll be happy to look into it and get back to you. But here's what I do know. Jesus, Jesus died so that you might be reconciled. God desires peace with you. Um, you, you bide under the wrath of God, and God has made a way so that you can be at peace with him. That's what I do know. I'll be happy to get into your question on carbon dating. I'll get back to you as soon as I can, but here's what I do know. You've got to be humble enough to just say that and, and not be ashamed of saying something like that. So anyway, that's, that's one of the things I find very encouraging from this passage is, uh, yes, Zeb. That's Spurgeon? Okay. I just heard it a lot hanging around Grace. MacArthur liked that quote a lot. Okay. It was Spurgeon. The Spurge. Um, any, yes, Jim. Sure. Sure. No, 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 fair enough. Turn to Romans 1. Um, let me, let me, let me, you use some categories that I'd like to unpack for everyone else. Jim said general revelation. Um, the Bible students, people who study the Bible, have distinguished between general and special revelation. These are the categories theologian types give for them. But what we mean by general and special revelation is that truth content which God has given to all men without exception, and that truth content which is limited to written writings given to some. So not everybody has this. This would be special 
or a limited revelation. In other words, it's limited to those who have this content. There's a, a gospel message. The whole, the whole impetus behind the Great Commission and missions is not everybody has heard, not everyone has this revelation, this information. We need to get it out there. That's special or specialized revelation. General revelation is given to everybody. Not only is general revelation given to everybody, general revelation is received by everybody. That, that's an important distinction to make. What Romans 1 claims, and what Psalm 19 claims, we'll take a minute looking at those in a minute, is not that this information is out there for those who care to see, just like that clock on the back of the wall is there if you care to look. Just because it's there doesn't mean you all know what time it is. You could know what time it is if you cared to look and see. God is not saying, I've left enough information. If you care to look and see, you'll know that I'm there. He's making a much stronger claim than that. Go to Romans 1. And look what God has said. Um, this part, again, explains God's wrath. It's not God saying, hey, hey, if you bothered to slow down, if you bothered to stop for a second, you'd realize I'm here and you'd realize something's wrong and you'd realize that I'm glorious. That is not the claim of Romans 1. The claim of Romans 1 is something far, far stronger. Verse 19 why is, oh, go to 18. Why is God angry? Why is God's wrath revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth? Romans is saying not, hey, there's a clock at the back of the wall and you could look. Romans 1 is saying there's a clock at the back of the wall and all of you did look and all of you saw what time it was. And now all of you are trying to pretend you didn't. Suppressing the truth only works if we know something that we're trying to ignore. Suppressing the truth, that charge, the prosecution's charge is not that we could have known if we wanted. The prosecution's charge is we know darn well, and we're trying our best not to, to pretend we don't keep going. Verse uh, 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Not he's left it there for us to see. He's actually shown us. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, now get this, not can be perceived, have been clearly perceived. We saw and we understood. It's not just, I saw everyone look at the clock. I saw everyone look at the clock and they comprehended what they saw. They understood what time it was. Notice there's no way out of this. It's not, it's not that you could know, you do know, and you understand the implications. Have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things have been made, which is therefore why Paul can say, therefore they have no excuse. That, that is general revelation, which is why science rightly doesn't fall under the category of general revelation. General revelation is not that which can be known, if you go out and research, it's that which is known. It's that which is known. Not which that which can be known, but that which is known. Not which that, that we can discover, but that which everybody knows. Like conscience elsewhere. Everyone has a conscience. You know you're born knowing right from wrong. It's not something you can know. It's something you do know. Now, it's also something you can hold down long enough it leaves you alone in silences. So general revelation is that which is known about God. And here, what they know about God is that he's powerful, 
What's it say in verse 20? His invisible attributes, his power and divine nature have been clearly perceived. So nature doesn't tell you that God's a savior. Nature doesn't tell you necessarily that God's wrathful. Nature doesn't necessarily tell you some of the things about God, that he's triune. But you know he's powerful. You know he's majestic. You know there's a wisdom and a glory. You know that much from creation. But then if you turn to chapter 2, Paul also says we know that God is righteous because of our consciences. And we're getting back again to general revelation, what everybody intuitively knows. Verse 14, chapter 2, if anyone ever asks you, well, what about somebody who never heard the gospel in, you know, Ubanga or somewhere you know, unreached tribe. Then they just discover an island off of India that's like killing everybody they send there. I saw that in the news. Some, yeah. Um, what about those people? And there's a great, great news, which isn't that helpful. God doesn't hold us accountable for what we don't know. God does not hold us accountable for what we don't know, but that's not going to get anyone off the hook. Pick it up in verse 2.12, Romans 2.12. For all who have sinned, without the law, will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So first off, the law, the law of Moses, will not judge anyone who didn't receive the law of Moses. God will not be holding um, people who've never heard of the Bible to the Ten Commandments. You won't. They'll perish without the law. Only those who had the law will be judged by the law. So, so God's not going to quote Bible verses to people who've never heard of a Bible. God's not going to hold them to what he said through Moses and what he said through the prophets. No, no, no. They, they, don't, they will not be judged by this. But that still doesn't get them off the hook because look at verse 13 and 14. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature, do what the law requires. They are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their consciences bear witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse and excuse them. The Gentiles who don't have a law become a law unto themselves. What standard will God hold people who don't have Scripture to? He will hold them to the standard of their own conscience. He will hold them to the standard of what they know and not to what they didn't know. But we all know that if God only held us to the standard of our conscience, which one of us could stand? Steve, you could stand? Sorry, no, what do you mean? What we know. What I mean by know is the knowledge you have. Every one of us has a knowledge of right and wrong. We, we know it. We can't not know it. We can't not know that, that, that some things are wrong and some things are right. It's intuitive. Our own... I'm just using the language here. Something inside of me beats me over the head when I do wrong. Something inside of me denounces me. Their own thoughts, their own thoughts, they show the work of the law written on their hearts while their conscience bears witness, their conflicting thoughts accusing or excusing them. Now, that voice inside of me that condemns me or praises me does so as though the issue were decided. My conscience doesn't say, I think that's wrong. My conscience can be wrongly informed, but my conscience speaks with authority. My conscience speaks with knowledge. It doesn't speak in maybes and perhapses. My conscience praises or condemns me matter-of-factly and absolutely, even though my conscience can be wrongly informed. It can be wrong. My conscience can condemn me for doing something that's not wrong, and my conscience can tell me I'm free to do something that is wrong, 
we can we can twist and and cheat and and there's people in First Corinthians whose their conscience is telling them they can't eat meat sacrificed to idols and but the conscience speaks with knowledge. That's all my point is. It's it's not. Am I dealing with you? Oh, okay. Yeah. They teach their kids the same thing. That there is no right and wrong. That there's no right and wrong. There is no God. There is no saving. When you die, you die. Right. Jesus, there was no Jesus. He's just not a man. I like. I like. I yeah. And I would say no. And and oh, and, and Paul's go back. Go back to chapter two, verse one. Here's Paul's argument for that. How do, you know, R.C. Sproul has got this great quote. Somebody asked him at some conference, I was watching the video, you know, how do I convince my brother that there's such a thing as sin? He says, steal his wallet. <laughs> um, no, no, but the point is, we are hardwired to know that there's right and wrong. But not only are we hardwired to know there's right and wrong, we're hardwired to know that wrong brings judgment. Look at, look at chapter 2, verse 1. And notice this phrase of Paul that he repeats, you have no excuse, oh man. And he's telling you what people know without the Bible. This is what general revelation communicates. And I'm, this is a long-winded answer to Jim's question, but I'll come back around to it. What's the content of general revelation? We've seen there is a God who's glorious and powerful. We've seen there is right and wrong. My conscience excuses and excuses me. Another piece of general revelation is judgment. And... You therefore have no excuse to one, O oh man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you the judge practice the very same thing. So what I would say, Steve, I'm witnessing to somebody, is look, you know, the Bible says you know right and wrong. I'll prove it to you. Have you ever been wronged by somebody and in response hit them, cursed them, swore at them, gotten revenge? You, you've made yourself the judge. Not only have you recognized a right and wrong, but you've, you've indicated that you recognize there needs to be a reckoning, there needs to be a judgment, there needs to be a fitting response, there needs to be a punishment, and you have metered that out yourself. You have made yourself the judge. You have demonstrated that there's a relationship between wrongdoing and judgment because you have poured out your judgment on those that you've seen as wronging you. Therefore, you have no excuse. You know perfectly well that doing wrong, there is a right and wrong, and you know perfectly well that doing wrong invites judgment because you yourself have metered out judgment. Does that that make sense? So you can't escape it. Paul says, every one of us is condemned because we've judged other people. So if someone stands before God and said, I didn't know there's right and wrong, God could say, here, almost like playing the, the videotape, is every time your conscience said, well done or bad. Well, I didn't know there was judgment. Here's every single time you've judged another person for wronging you. There's no excuse. So this is the content of general revelation. Quickly, just turn to Psalm 19. We're going to look at Psalm 19. When we get done with Zechariah, I have one more summary week. We're going to do some psalms this summer. And one of the psalms we're going to do is Psalm 19. Um, We're going to cover a couple more psalms. And then, after Labor Day, we're going to start the Gospel of Luke. That's the plan, at least. But in Psalm 19, praises first God's general revelation and then God's special or specific revelation. The psalm divided into two halves, praising and extolling the glories of God's general and then his special revelation. So in the first six verses, a, a praise is made of what can be known about God everywhere, what God has revealed to everyone. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. 
The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words, nor other words, whose voice is not heard. What he's saying is, this is something that's made it to every language, every race, every people has heard this message. There is no people group where this message didn't come across clearly. You know what I'm saying? And every single day it's on. It's not something that was said once. Every single day, like megaphones around us and stereo speakers and surround sound is, there's a glorious God who made this. There's a glorious God who made this. Just, you stop for a second. The trees are saying it right now even. It's declaring God's praise. Everything is declaring God's praise. Everything. Day in to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, their word to the ends of the world. And he gives one example. In them he set a tent for the sun, which goes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. The sun, he says, is a good example of something declaring God's glory, and it lightens everyone... And then he turns his attention to special revelation. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And he goes on to speak of how desirable and how helpful they are. But anyway, Psalm 19, focusing on these general and special revelations. So to summarize, what does natural man, what does a pygmy in, in the tropics in, in Papua New Guinea, what, what do they already know? They know there's a creator God. They know right from wrong. They know doing wrong brings judgment. And they know that no amount of doing good makes up for wrongdoing. They know that as well. They know that law-keeping doesn't, doesn't remove law-breaking. You know, we talk about this, Paul makes this point in Romans 3. For the sake of time, I'll just summarize it. But we know that the law doesn't justify, it only condemns. I mean, how many, how many people here think this type of defense would work in court? You know, I've used this example before, but you know, someone's brought up on the charges of murder, and they say, it's true, Your Honor, I have murdered a couple times, but I am sorry about that. And I'm going to try not to do it again. However, my attorney has combed through both the federal and the state statutes, and we've discovered that while it is true that I've broken one of your laws three or four times, there are literally thousands of laws I've kept perfectly every day of my life. I think when you weigh that, really, um, I'm really, I mean, I'm, I'm a law keeper 99.99999% of the time. Here's thousands of law. I've never, I've never committed forgery, treason. I've, you know, he just goes through the list. That surely that's got to be worth something. What judge, what law court's going to say, well, in that case, even though you horribly murdered three people, we're going to let you go because you say you're not, you're going to try not to do it again. You are sorry. And after all, he has kept the law the majority of his time. No, it doesn't work that way. And yet we somehow think God's justice system is going to be less than that. And, and we are flawed. So we know there's a God. We know right from wrong. We know judgment's coming. And we know law-keeping does not make up for law-breaking. That's what we all know without the Bible. That's what everybody knows. You go witness to your neighbor, that is what they know. Additionally, that is what they're trying to hold down. So... 
Yes, yeah. Sure. Oh, oh. Oh, no, no that, that's, that's what you got to expose to them because they think, oh, if you try your best, if you do your best, God's going to... Well, first of all, who tries their best, honestly? <laughs> who wants to say they've tried their best? What, what, sorry, what did you say, George? Uh, oh. I'm not as bad as him. Yeah. Right, right, right. So we measure it. And there's always Hitler. So as long as there's Hitler, we can feel better because, you know, we're, we're, we're not as bad as Hitler. And, and that's the problem. If we measure it, Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 4, when we measure ourselves by ourselves, we indicate that we have no... Um, we, we no wisdom, and yes, Seb. Rebellion against God. Yeah. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Indeed. Right. Right. This is probably the hardest thing to get across in evangelism is that it's not, we want to, most people, I've never met anybody who claims to be without any fault, but most people want to view themselves as generally decent people who make mistakes. We, we have blemishes. We, we have a couple cracks on our surface, but the core of our being is good. So these good, well-intentioned people who we make mistakes. And, and then the problem is your remedy, your cure, will correspond to your disease. And so if the disease is we're decent people who need a hand, we're decent people who need some of the scuffs and the scrapes buffed out, then that's one cure. What we need to get across is we are through and through, every layer down, depraved, broken, corrupt, rebellious, which is why, and that's probably the hardest thing to get across, and why Luther said if he had an hour to witness to somebody, he'd spend 50 minutes expounding the law and sin and 10 minutes expounding Christ, because once the law is done, it's work. See, let me, let me get back to this. One, one moment. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, but laying it out. Let me show you what God says. Let me show you what God says. Let me show you what God says, because... What natural revelation should leave us if we're not suppressing the truth is I'm in a world of trouble and I need, I need saving. I need saving. And um, like that's when I came to scripture, that's where I was at. I was so convicted of my own of my own sinfulness, my own need for a savior, my own guilt. I was so convinced if I stood before God, he would damn me to hell. Then when I came to scripture, I'm like, I need saving. <laughs> And then I remember praying, God, is this where I should look or should I look somewhere else? And I think that that lines up with the promise Jesus gave in John 7, 17. If anyone's will is to do the Father's will, he will know whether this teaching is from God. If anyone genuinely wants to be reconciled with God, and the only question they have is, do we look here or do we look to the Quran? God will give them the wisdom to know. Um, but So natural revelation gives us enough knowledge to know we're in trouble. We need help. We should be desperate people looking for saving looking for salvation, and we're not. So that gets back to, okay, how do you deal with that? Well, it, it certainly gives you, one of the helps we've got, we have two tremendous helps in evangelism. One is we have another person's involved. Evangelism is always a three-way conversation. It's us, them, and the Holy Spirit, right? And the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The second help we have is we have an inside man. Truth is already inside of them that they're trying to hold down. And so you don't want to be a jerk about it, but I, I speak to that. Frequently when I evangelize, when I'm talking to somebody, I'll say, look, here's, here's what I believe is true. I believe you already know there's a God. I don't believe in God. Okay, fine, fine. 
I, I don't believe you really believe that. I, I, I'm willing to bet that um, there are nights when you lie awake at night, you can't sleep, but you know. You're like somebody suppressing the truth, and you suppress it, you hold it down, but I'm willing to bet there are times where your grip slips and it pops up, that you know there's right and wrong, and you are afraid of death. That's, that's what I believe. And I've got good news and a solution for that, but if you can't be honest with the truth you already know, I don't know what use more truth is going to be if you can be honest about the truth you already know. And Paul always starts in his evangelism with Gentiles by establishing there's a God who will judge the earth. And if people will hear that, then he'll expound more. Others scoff and mock. And, and so there's a sense in which people already know a fair amount of things, and we can talk to them about that. In my thinking, let's see how honest you'll be about the truth I know you already know. And then we can move on to more truth. But if you can't even be honest with the truth you already know, you know, there's not a whole lot more I can do for you. But I can act calmly and, and gently and not be a jerk about it. But no, I know you know. Um, and God, I mean, I remember saying this to a friend of mine who became a Christian. I said, look, here's the thing, Jay. My friend's name is Jay Timmons. I said, Jay, God knows that you know he exists. And because he wrote it down, now I know that you know he exists. And you know he knows that he, you exi- he exists. So can't we all just admit it? <laughs> You know, um, now you could be a jerk beating someone in the head with that stuff, but but I, yeah, I don't believe in atheists. I'm an atheist. Um, I don't believe in them. And on the day of judgment, there are no atheists, and no one will be able to use atheism as their excuse. Now, again, that doesn't mean we be jerks because we've had a lifetime in practice keep deceiving ourselves, suppressing that truth, holding it down. So it doesn't mean everyone you meet is consciously self-aware a theist, but everyone knows. Did I see another hand on that point? This is huge. Because it, again, reduces our work. Um, It reduces our work. We can speak. This is why you can declare the gospel and not having to argue the gospel. It's great if you want to give reasons to the gospel, that's fine. But you can declare it because there is truth that they know that this will resonate with on the inside. Hebrews 2 says we are all held captive to slavery, to fear, to death. We're all afraid of death because we all know judgment's coming. All no judgment's coming. And so when you announce the means of escape from judgment, something inside the person hopefully will resonate with that. Um, yes, an ambassador just needs to declare. The ambassador just says, hey, here's what uh, North Korea's offering. Here's what Iran's offering. Here's what Canada's offering. Here's what France is offering. Here, here's the, an ambassador doesn't get to negotiate and alter the message either. right? Ambassadors don't get to like, change the conditions. We don't get to meddle with the gospel. We just, hey, here's what our homeland is offering. Here's the deal. Here's the accord they want to strike, or the covenant they wish to cut with you. Um, any, any questions or thoughts on this stuff? Wow, okay, okay. Um, yes, Bridget, thank you. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah, no, no, absolutely. There, there's, you, you respond to different people different ways. If people open their mouths to justify themselves, you generally want to bring the law 
or, or, or conviction of sin till their mouths are shut. But Paul says the law will shut every mouth. Every mouth will be shut. When someone's no longer justifying themselves, excusing themselves, minimizing their sin, if somebody's owning that, you, you, you give them grace. I mean, so like the Philippian jailer was about to fall on his sword, right? The Philippian jailer was at the end of himself. Paul doesn't give a long excursus about sin. <laughs> He just says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's a guy who is, who is completely broken, completely in despair, in essence saying, give me something to live for. The rich young ruler gets a very different answer, right? And that's part of the, that's part of the problem of programmatic evangelism is we want to come up with a gospel presentation that will speak to the rich young ruler and the Philippian jailer the same way. I don't think that's a good idea. Um, so programs can be helpful, but at the end of the day, we need the wisdom to know how to answer every man. We need to know, are we dealing with a Philippian jailer? Are we dealing with a rich young ruler? What do they need to hear? Is this somebody who's self-righteous and needs to have their sinfulness exposed? Is this somebody who's well aware of their sinfulness and they need a savior to live for? And yeah, I mean, one of the things you'll find is Jesus' treatment of evangelism is radically different case by case. The way he talks to Nicodemus couldn't be more different from the way he talks to the woman at the well. Again, this, and this, this is problematic if we want, this is the way I share my faith. I got step one, step two, four, spiritual, whatever. And again, those can be helpful, but we can lean on them way too much. And we need to realize Jesus didn't evangelize, Paul didn't evangelize the same way to everybody. He, he, he gave, we, we speak to different people in different ways and in different places, and we know what we can learn from them. Um, so we need to use wisdom in how we speak to people. So no, absolutely, you would, might talk to someone differently. Absolutely. Um, and without knowing more where they're at, I couldn't give you more than that. But yes, there's not like, well, here's how you do it. Um, and became all thanks to all men that I've been the more. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, that's wonderful. The, the, yeah, the, it's, yeah, you're talking about John ten, the nine, sorry, nine, the man born blind, and they're interrogating him. They interrogate him twice, and he says, "Look, I don't know, but here's what I do know: I was blind, and now I see. I, I don't know what to do with carbon dating, and here's what I do know: I was lost, dead, and now I'm alive and saved, and now I'm at peace with God. That's what I do know. That's that's what I do know, and um, I'd love to tell you about that if you'd be interested in hearing it." And uh, well, what about those are great questions? And I'll be here's here's what here's a tip. By the way, when someone wants to throw something out at you, it used to be with me. It was always evolution and creation and stuff. Nowadays, it might just as easily be our our sexual ethic. Oh, the Bible's judgmental. Okay, is that really? Here's what, here's what I've learned to say because I used to go off on these rabbit because I never do rabbit trails, rightly. Never, <laughs> never do rabbit trails. I say, oh, great, and I dive into this stuff. I learned later, I think a much wiser course from somebody, I look at somebody and say, look, um, if that's really the issue that's keeping you from bowing your knee to Christ, is the issue of sex ethics and homosexuality and understanding that, there are answers to that, and we can spend the time studying through it. But before we do, is that really the issue that's keeping you from bowing your knee to Christ? I've never had somebody say yes to that question. Like, we can talk about dinosaurs. Absolutely we can. Um, but before we do that and take the time to do that, is this really the thing? So when we get done with this, if I answer your questions, you're, you're ready to bow your knee to Christ? No. Okay, then let's move on to what the real issue is. Um, and dinosaurs are just a smoke screen. These other things are just smoke screens. 
Um, I, I find that helpful so you don't get totally distracted. If you meet the person who says, oh yeah, yeah, I love, I'm really interested in this gospel. I really want to, I, I just stumble over this. Great. We can deal with that. We got answers for that. Um, we got like five minutes to go. Come on, somebody else throw a question out. I got a handout, but seriously, I'm not going to hand the handout out for five minutes. Um, you should talk to Jeff Zimmerman. Amen? Yes. Or Dave Kingery. That's another hobby horse of his as well. Jeff, Jeff is our, sort of our local... Um, he, he, that he's made that a hobby, studying that issue as well. So, um, no, no. Well, well, yeah, yeah. Let's I'm, okay. That that really would be going off on a tangent. Um, I will, uh, I'll disperse from that. But yeah, we come back to we have an authoritative word, we have an authoritative book, and it just needs to be announced. God has not proclaimed us to be um, logicians and apologists and arguers and debaters. God has declared us to be ambassadors who announce a message and plead. And in some senses, that's a harder and easier task. It's harder because we need to really care about people. We need to really get in there and plead with them. It's easier because I don't need to know 27 answers for this problem, 37 answers for that problem, and deal with every single objection you might have. I just need to declare a message and invite you to be reconciled with God through Christ. Uh, that's, that's all I need to do. Everything else is great and all, but that's evangelism. Evangelism is declaring a message, declaring it. You don't have to argue it, declaring it, and inviting someone to be reconciled with God through Christ. That's it. We're going to do the unthinkable. Unless there's another question, we're going to end five minutes early. Is there another question? Okay. Yes, Zach. Sure. And, and sure, no, there are, there are people who, to use Paul's language, judge themselves unworthy of eternal life. And Paul wipes the dust off his feet and declares himself innocent of their blood, and he moves on. And that's a fearful conclusion to come to. But sure, if you're trying to share with someone, and they don't want to hear it, could we change the topic and stop talking about this? And that's really their settled disposition. So be it. There are others who need to hear um, so this doesn't evangelism doesn't mean we're jerks. It doesn't mean we're we're bullies. 
it, it does mean we're looking, we're open, and we're trying to speak the words of life. But, but Paul, um, I have to look it up in Acts, but I know at least one, he quotes the example in, from Ezekiel in, in Acts and um, declares himself innocent. Zeb, can you look up innocent blood Acts? Just innocent blood Acts. It's there. Ah, thought we were done. <laughs> you can go better now. Um, hold on. Acts, I think it's like 18, I want to say. Um, let me see, i got it underlined here, I'm sure. There it is, 18, yeah, I found it. 18, 6. 5 and 6. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews, just testifying again, testifying to the Jews that Christ that the Christ was Jesus, and they opposed and reviled him. He shook out his garments and said to him, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. Now that, turn to Ezekiel um, 3, is a, is a reference to Ezekiel and, a, and something God said to Ezekiel, which we're probably not very familiar with. But to understand what Paul is saying, um, actually, go to Ezekiel 20, not 3. Go to Ezekiel 20. And we'll look at um, verse Ezekiel 20, is it 26? No, where is it? Am I, what am I doing wrong here? 2026, hold on. I'm confused now. Ezekiel, sorry, Ezekiel 3, I'm wrong, it is Ezekiel 3. It's John twenty twenty six. Okay, I mean Acts twenty twenty six. John three. And it, no, we're not. Um, you should do Ezekiel. Okay, check it out. Ezekiel three, verse sixteen. This is what Paul is referencing. At the end of the seven days, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall surely give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked man from his way, from his wicked way, in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. You get the idea? Oh yeah, he's still going to die for his sin, but I'm going to require you. You're guilty of his blood. You didn't warn him. I told you to warn him, and you didn't. Um, but, he says, um, verse 19, But if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall surely die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Again, if a righteous person turns from his righteousness and commits injustice, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because you have not warned him, he shall die for his sin, and his righteous deeds that he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the righteous person not to sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live, because he took the warning, and you will have delivered your soul. That's what Paul is saying when he says, I'm free of the guilt of your blood. I've tried to speak to you. You didn't want to hear it. I'm moving on, Paul says to the Gentiles, and I'm innocent of your blood. He's referencing Ezekiel 3. So, there's this, I mean, it's a terrifying place to come to. Jesus says something similar when he talks about casting your pearls before swine. Um, so, it, it's a frightening place to be, but yes, 
always be ready, always looking. But if someone makes it clear, I, I, Zach, I don't want to hear this. Can you stop talking about this? I'd, I'd respect that and say, okay. I mean, I, I, I grieve over that. But I don't think being faithful means, no, no, we're going we're gonna to talk, even if you don't want to. Um, I mean, let them know the urgency. Let them know that this is life or death. But yeah, we're not to be quarrelsome. Kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God grants some repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Okay, it's half past. You are dismissed.